0: Welcome to the Pod 20 and my guest this week is Tom Clark-Hill. He's the voice of Tony the Tiger and part of Gavin Davies' podcast, Spanner and Spoon. Good afternoon, General. It seems we've had a bit of a problem down at the local
1: store. They've had a wobbly. A wobbly, eh? Yes, that's what I said. A wobbly. Hmm. Tell us what happened. Well, Mr Plunkett, the shopkeeper, was going about his usual evening duties, you know putting the cat out and making himself a nice glass of warm milk when he heard a very loud noise. Go on. Yeah, he rushed down the stairs into his shop and found that the door had been smashed off its hinges. And a very short man was running away with a huge pack of toilet rolls. Toilet rolls, you say? Yes, just toilet rolls and a large bag of sherbet lemons. Then he hopped onto his motorcycle and sidecar and rode off towards your property. Really? The cheek of some people. Yes, precisely. Mr Plunkwick called a station, so I decided to come over here and ask if you'd seen anything suspicious.
2: Well, it's funny you should say that, as I found a sherbet lemon by our bin last night when I put the cat out.
1: <coughs> but all of this happened this evening, general. Hmm,
2: that is very odd indeed. And the sherbet lemon was sitting on top of a toilet roll.
0: Ooh, Tom Clark Hill will be on in a bit to tell us more about the podcast Spanner and Spoon. Rob Goldstone is the man who set up the famous meeting with Donald Trump that became the focus of Russiagate. He's the host of the podcast An Englishman in. Rob will be on to talk about the run-in he had with the comedian and actor Jerry Lewis. Saruti Bala from the true crime podcast Red-Handed will tell us about the most shocking case the Red-Handed podcast has covered. And Seattle radio personality BJ Shea will explain why being a radio presenter to him is like being an actor. But first, there's a lot of confusion over the new rules about listening to this show. Let me simplify it for you. The rules are You can't listen to this show in groups of more than six unless you're Jeremy Corbyn. You can't listen in a shop without wearing a face mask unless you're Boris Johnson's dad. You can't listen in a pub after 10pm unless the pub is in Parliament. And you can't listen in one of the University Halls of Residence unless you make a slogan out of post-it notes and stick it to the inside of your window. Got that? Good. If you follow these rules, you will be allowed to listen to this show at Christmas with your family. Unless you're Uncle Ben. Because Uncle Ben's rice is changing its name to Ben's original and removing the picture of him from its packaging. Which is a shame, because Uncle Ben was a credit to his rice. I'm Graham Mack and the Pod 20 is heard on podcast radio on DAB in London, the home counties Manchester and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com, around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. Let's get into the chart now and at number 20, and that's why we drink chilling ghost stories and true crime stories. The world's a scary place and that's why we drink at 19 today in focus from the guardian at 18, the cartoon podcast from Gavin Davies called spanner and spoon. It features the many voices of Tom Clark Hill. Tom, tell me about this podcast spanner and spoon.
2: It's almost like a radio play, which I think is is kind of a, um, a cool thing. And, uh, I think it's gonna it's gonna um, turn into a, a a chance for us to to do some wackier episodes and get some more people involved.
0: Because well. a lot of a lot of podcasts are um, are like plays. I mean, I spoke to Sean Williamson, who was uh, Barry in EastEnders, and he's got one called Eden's End. So yeah. a lot of that a lot of that kind of stuff is working out as podcasts. Yeah. So what have you been doing with that one then? Well, Gavin
2: Davies, uh, is, is a great musician and a friend of Ian Palmer's, the drummer I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I met, I met him on one of Ian's gigs in London. Yeah. And, uh, he just started riffing on all these, uh, uh, accents that he can do like he can do a, a liverpool or manchester or birmingham and all this stuff and and he's got some great voices and he goes but i've always wanted to get into that sort of a thing and and he goes God, i got these little plays that I've, I've written out would you be interested and i said yeah so he sent me over uh, episode one and gave me like two or three characters and we just kind of banged it out and then uh, he had an idea for the next one and he's got some real wacky ideas and i think they're going to get wackier
3: yeah
0: you know? and where but, do we uh, get them
2: it's on the uh, Spanner and Spoon is the uh, the Facebook page,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, and that'll take you to uh, and, and they've got it. Yeah, no Spanner and Spoon is, is a Facebook page that'll take you to the YouTube channel.
0: Right. Okay. And it's all on there. Yeah. And it's at number eighteen this week on the Pod Twenty Spanner and Spoon. More from Tom in a bit when we'll find out how he went from being a musician to being an actor. At 17, Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell's journey through the overlooked and misunderstood. 16 is the High Performance Podcast with Jake Humphrey. Number 15, An Englishman in from Rob Goldstone. Rob, in the 90s, you moved from where you had been living in Australia to America.
3: Right. um, So in Australia, due to my overwhelming success with Virgin, I was poached for want of a better word by hmv which at the time were the world's largest record stores and i ended up doing pr for them then the then boss said to me um would you run our international marketing and i said sure i don't know what that means but sure so for a couple of years i started out running international marketing and i ended up there for nearly eight or nine years it's just as part of it he said where do you want to live and i said I don't know New York and he goes great I don't care where you live but and they were expanding in the states at the time so they made it possible for me to move to New York and dealt with all the issues of visas and green cards whatever and I simply moved to New York and did my job and over the course of the next seven or eight years we again we had amazing amazing fun I had an amazing boss and my job was to help with the drama of opening new territories, new stores. I had Paul McCartney walk to a, to a, an HMV store and just suddenly appear and thousands of people. We did stuff with Madonna and Prince. I had Prince on the roof play, like mad things. That all became very second nature to me. And so I try to say that to people. So when someone says to me, can you call the Trumps and ask for a meeting? <laughs> it's not shocking to me. It's just yet another ask. I think context in a lot of these things is really important. So, you know, if, if my neighbor said to me, oh, someone asked me to call the Trump for a meeting, I would be shocked. Mm, yeah. But I'm not shocked at myself because I've done crazier things. It turns out I haven't done crazier things than that now. But, I mean, to me, it was just another ask. It was just another one of these crazy things.
0: And you got involved with the Friars Club and their famous celebrity roasts and some lifetime achievement galas for for different people. And you also crossed paths with the comedian Jerry Lewis.
3: Oh, I did cross paths with him. (laughs) So he's a hateful, awful man, but he was a very good comedian and actor, but he's known for being an awful, hateful man. It's not just me saying it. And he hates the press. And if you're the publicist for someone that hates the press, that's a great job. (laughs) So when he was 85... Um, he had a birthday party at the Friars and lots of his acting friends were there and I had the press and I suppose to spite me because I had the press there, he'd agreed to do a photo. So we had tons of press but he wouldn't face them because as he told me, he hadn't agreed to face them he'd just agreed to do the photo. So he stood with his back to the cameras and whatever they were used to it. and it's a funny photo anyway of Jerry Lewis with his back to you and um, he sat down and at the entertainment editor for the Associated Press said to me He's 85. I would love to talk to him for a few minutes about his birthday, his life, whatever. I thought that was a very fair request, which he would never do anyway, so let's ask. So I went up and I approached him. He was sitting down. He was all excited. He got these gifts from his actor friends. And I said, um, there's a, a journalist who I know very well. He's a very legitimate, very nice journalist. Would like to speak to you for five minutes about your life and jerry lewis stopped in his tracks and said to me come here and pointed at me and he said let me get this right you believe that my life can be summed up in five minutes and i said well obviously not no he goes but that's what you just said you said five minutes and i said he just needs five minutes to talk about your 85 and he goes So the publicist, my publicist here, thinks my life can be summed up in five minutes, at which point you know that the only thing to do is literally leave. And I just said, okay, if you prefer, you could do an hour with him, but you're not going to do it anyway. So my question is, would you like to spend five minutes with him? At which point he picked up a salami and threw it at me, (laughs) to which I said to him, happy birthday and goodbye. And I left. And i always liked it because it's a ridiculous story about a year later i was doing a tribute for the fries to tom cruise and it so happened that tom cruise and me were in a very tiny anteroom of the kitchen at the waldorf astoria and um i don't often do this but i said to him would you do a selfie with me and he said Sure, if you tell me that about when Jerry Lewis threw a salami at you. <laughs> and I said, How would you possibly know that? And he said, Because I just realized that this was you, because my publicist pointed it out. And she was there when this happened, and she was telling some friends on a boat we were on at the Cannes Film Festival, and it sounded funny. Will you tell me? So I told him this mad story, and he laughed. Tom Cruise has a funny laugh. So he laughed. And then he said, You can take your selfie. And I was a bit starstruck and I couldn't remember how you take a picture on an iPhone. So I pushed a button that was like movie and he laughed and he goes, see, you've now got the shortest movie I ever made. (laughs) It was funny, but yes, in answer to your question, I did the Fryer Club. So we did people like Quentin Tarantino and Larry King. And, um, uh, now, I can't remember anybody's name, but we did um, Tony Bennett and Martin Scorsese. The thing about working for something iconic like the Friars Club is they were the home of Dean Martin and, and Jerry Lewis and Frank Sinatra. He was the abbot of the Friars Club for about 20 years. So these people were iconic that we worked with. It was shocking. And I'll say it again, because of the types of asks I was asked to do. Why would being asked to talk to Donald Trump's <laughs> low level son, I don't mean this in a bad way, or or why would that phase me? But people don't understand why it wouldn't have phased me.
0: It did phase a lot of people, though, Rob. You know, the meeting you set up with Trump and the Russian solicitor became known as Russiagate. Rob Goldstone, his podcast, An Englishman In, is at number 15 this week on the pod 20. Rob will be back next week to talk about working with Richard Branson in Australia. At number 14, The Ezra Klein Show, winner of the 2020 Webby and People's Voice Awards for Best Interview Podcast. At 13, the Happiness Lab with Dr. Laurie Santos. Yale professor Dr. Laurie Santos has studied the science of happiness and found that many of us do the exact opposite of what will truly make our lives better. Back to my guest now, Tom Clark Hill. Now, before you were an actor, you worked as a bass player in a band.
2: Well, I guess the thing that got me into that, got me into that band in the first place was I wasn't just a bass player. I was doing, um, I was singing and I was also doing impersonations, like I did a, you know, Louis Armstrong, well, hello, darling, you know, singing along, that sort of thing. And then I worked up a little um, comedy routine of, of like, uh, impersonations that I'd been doing, you know, really old actors, you know, like, well, John Wayne, get off your horse and drink your milk, ha, 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 and, you know, all the monsters, like, Bella Lugosi, I want to suck your blood, and he had, um, with, sarsaparilla, you know, Boris Kala and Peter Laurie that sort of thing. So I, I just did a, a version of Misty, I think, you know, and uh, like we all remember Johnny Mathis. <laughs> Look at me. I'm as helpless as a kid. <laughs> you know, but what would it be like if John Wayne, well, I'm clinging to a cloud I can't understand. And then uh, Clint Eastwood, walk my way, punk. A thousand violent So I just had this routine, like an impersonation sort of thing. And so I was always doing that stuff on the bandstand. And then when I got, uh, I did a, a, another move from Boston to L.A. Because I, th- I thought, oh, i got to get into show business, you know. Yeah. And um, when I got out there, I, I started doing the comedy clubs just on the open mic nights. And I would have impersonations with scaffolded with... Uh, you know, original jokes and some stolen jokes and, and all of that stuff. And then that, that kind of got me going. And then I met some guys that were doing some voiceovers. And I think the first one I heard that really caught my ear was Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah. He played the parrot on Aladdin. Right. And so it was at the comedy store and he went up and he came off and he goes, he goes, yeah, I made
1: mean, $10,000 this morning talking like a pack, like a parrot.
2: <laughs> and go, what?
1: Yeah. <laughs> talking like a parrot, $10,000.
2: So it turned out he was talking about when they were recording Aladdin, you know? Yeah. And I thought, wow, that's I want to get into this, man. So I took a class from a woman named Ginny Tyler, who used to be on uh, staff at Hanna-Barbera. Right. And she like, was on shows like The Wacky Racers and Hong Kong Phooey and all that stuff. And she liked me and started using me for projects that she was doing, which were actually really hard things for a beginning voiceover to do. It was dubbing uh english or english into uh japanese and russian cartoons
0: and right so, so the words would all be different they wouldn't was,
2: yeah the mouth movements were already there you know so like the japanese uh say the line was oh, watch out he's over there and the japanese thing will go <laughs> Like, so I say, watch out. I think he's over there, you know, that sort of thing. And then the Russian ones would be completely opposite, you know, like, vorsky, morsky, vishky, vorsky, right? like, you know, I say, watch out, man. I think he's over there, you know, <laughs> sort of thing. So you'd have to get the words off the page and be able to, to, and, and being a musician really helped with that because you could see the rhythm or you could hear the rhythm of, of how they'd recorded it. And then you translate that into your, into your line in English, you know, and, and get that timing straight in your head.
0: 'Cause usually when they make a cartoon they usually they, they, they get the voice actors first and then they animate to the to the words. But you're having yeah, to do it a, a backward a engineering. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and that's that's what they do with this thing on uh on uh Netflix, Robozuna. Yeah. You know, we had a chance to um, go over the scripts and um play around with them and say, Can I say this instead and stuff like that and then they would animate it to that. Right. But um yeah. But, uh, but music, being, being a musician pays uh, dividends in voiceover work, you know, because it's, it's really connected.
0: And it really works well for you, Tom. Tom Clark Hill, uh, coming up, we'll find out why Tom decided to make the move from the USA to the UK. It's the Pod 20, the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts. I'm Graham Mack, counting them down. And at number 12 this week, David Tennant does a podcast with David's latest guest is the actor Brian Cox. At 11, On Purpose with Jay Shetty, fascinating conversations with the most insightful people in the world. At 10, it's the true crime podcast, Red Handed, hosted by Hannah Maguire and Saruti Bala. Saruti, the podcast doesn't shy away from some horrific crimes, including Ian Watkins, the paedophile lead singer with the Lost Prophets. Was that the most shocking case you covered on Red Handed?
4: Good question. I think it was maybe the most shocking one that people listened to because it wasn't one that had been covered by a lot of other podcasts or a lot of other shows. There isn't even, there's like a 20 minute documentary out there on it, but it's more like a news, um, a news special rather than a fully produced documentary. And I think people just didn't know the extent to how bad it was. And not just the abuse, but also um, the way in which it was dropped uh there were just so many of so many of the victims fell through the sort of safeguarding net. It wasn't picked up by social services. Um, how the police didn't sort of follow through on certain leads they were getting, and it was kind of that um, ineptitude, unfortunately, on the safeguarding side of it, as well as the hor- horrors of the abuse, that just really, really shocked people because I think they just didn't know. They didn't know how bad it was. Yeah.
0: Have yeah. you touched anywhere there is a lot of speculation now, and if. If we go here, we'll have to be very careful. The Madeleine McCann case, have you touched that one? Yes, we did. Um, okay, so for well, we are not getting time. either of us into trouble. Because <laughs> this, cause remember, this gets broadcast on the radio, so we have yeah. the, the broadcasting regulations as well as the law the sure. Land to worry about. But what is your take on that whole thing?
4: So, for the longest time, I will admit, um, I didn't want to cover the Madeleine McCann case because... Um, Firstly I think it gets a lot of coverage and mm. I think there are a lot of victims out there who don't get anywhere near the amount of uh, press coverage so we wanted to focus on those victims but it was one we got asked to talk about all the time and unfortunately my opinion was not particularly favorable uh, for the longest time towards the McCanns but then we broke we finally said okay guys we will do it but we, what we did is uh, we were we were scared of the litigious yeah. nature behind it yeah. so we we put the we put we did it as a live stream, so like this. Uh, but we did it behind a paywall, and we said, if you guys want to watch, you need to you need to like come behind the paywall. We're going to do it there. We just feel a bit safer. But I made that decision prior to doing my research, really in depth into the case. And when we came to talk about it, I think bad decisions were made. But I do not think that the McCanns were involved in the disappearance of their daughter madeline mccann i think that it was um i think you know you can look into it as other children in the area were going missing at a similar time similar ages um so people do talk about whether there was some sort of organized crime going on there because sex trafficking is i don't think people realize how bad child sex trafficking is it is absolutely off the charts and I think people would be horrified if we realised just how terrible it is um, a situation right now Um, so that really comes from sort of organised crime and then you would have the lone offender who is stalking, who's casing the family, they were there for a week before Maddie went missing Um, so really for me it came down to it's either the organised crime or it's the lone um, attacker there's arguments either way um, but I would tend towards the lone um, the lone abductor, purely because um, I think an organised crime, organised group would have known how high risk a victim like Maddie McCann is to take and to exposing your organisation and your criminal activities because of who she was, the fact that she was um, a white child from a wealthy family on holiday in Portugal. I think they possibly wouldn't have been stupid enough to take her. But I, 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 one thing I am sure of now is I do not think that the McCanns had anything to do with it.
0: Okay, because a lot of people aren't so sure, are they? But uh,
4: I agree, uh, and I do think that is a very common thread, uh, a thought. The thing is, I think we see it in so many cases where people think, well, they're not behaving exactly how I think I would behave in that scenario, and therefore I think that they're guilty or they're hiding something. The thing I've learned during Red Handed is that people just behave very bizarrely when they're in yeah.
0: grief. And just because they're they're odd or they behave. I mean the Nutty Professor is the one is is the classic one. And if you go go way, way back, Lindy Chamberlain um, in, yes. in Australia was Absolutely. another one where most of Australia was convinced. Some of Australia still convince you.
4: Absolutely the they are. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that one of the biggest learnings for me through this podcast has been um, it massively increased my empathy levels to understand people um, in a much better way. And I think one particular case jumps out uh, to me massively. We well, did a case. I don't know if you've ever heard about this. It was in the US and it was about a man called Stephen Playdell and a, a, a woman called Katie Playdell. I'll give you a very quick rundown. It's probably one of our more shocking cases, actually, that's very unknown. So Stephen Playdell had a daughter when he was very young, when he was like 19, 20. The daughter gets given up for adoption. She grows up with another family somewhere else then when she's an adult she goes looking for her biological family she meets her mum and dad who are still together Stephen Playdle and his uh, wife Um, she moves in with them she has a very intense connection with them her and Stephen start a sexual relationship uh, so her his biological daughter and him and he's like at 40 she's 20 it's a very big mess she gets pregnant they run off they get married yes Um, I had to do a lot of digging into the incest laws in every state in the US. It's, it's a whole lot. It's a whole thing. And, uh, spoiler, he eventually ends up murdering her. So it is, um, it's horrific. It's a horrific case. We've done an hour long episode if anyone's interested. Um, but the natural reaction is, ugh what this is sick they're sick but then i did a huge just rabbit hole deep dive into this thing called genetic sexual attraction which apparently it is super 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 common there's something like almost 40 percent of um, adoption reunions as adults between biologically related adults results in at least one of them having intensely sexual relation uh, sexual feelings towards the other and in very rare cases it's reciprocated and it's like this unstoppable thing and I think reading into that just gave me such a, a different way when we talked about it I was like we could sit here and be like uh but let's try and understand why these people were feeling this way and I think people really took on board with that and had a lot of empathy for Katie and for um the situation that she was in so I think, yeah, that's been one of the biggest learnings. But I think coming back to what we're talking about with Lindy, we covered the Peter Falconio case uh, a few weeks ago when uh, Channel 4 did the big Murder in the Outback documentary. Because she acted funny as well, didn't she? Again, people were like, she did it. Look at her. Look how cold she's being. I would say, okay, strip away your feelings about not liking Joanne Lees because she's not crying in the way you think you would if this was you. Let's look at the facts. Where has this woman who is barely a woman. She was so young at that point. And I was like, she who's never been to Australia before. You're telling me she got rid of a body in the middle of the outback. Where is the body? And all of the stuff about the footprints, there's just such a mess. It was the same police force, the Northern Territory Police, who messed up the Lindy Chamberlain case. Yeah. They did it again. The the police work. Basically the thing that I think with the um with the Peter Falconio case is Joanne Lees, she her story doesn't make sense yeah. based on the physical evidence that is found but does her story not make sense because of the and um, match with the physical evidence found because she's lying or because the police messed up the physical evidence so badly yeah, it was that contaminated, she fa- wasn't wasn't a lot of it so yeah. badly contaminated they walked all over the scene and then they said they couldn't find any footprints and it was like of course you could not because you walked all over the scene it's it's a it's a whole mess and also secondly she was through one of the most horrific experiences that anyone could possibly go through if she's telling the truth, which I do think she is. Do you not think they would have pumped her full of Valium so that they could just roll her out to press conferences? Of course she's not acting like you would expect a normal person to act. Like she, if you look at her, she looks like somebody who is shell-shocked, somebody who was possibly on Valium to calm her down. I think without the whole story, people jumping to conclusions, which is something I used to do, all the time when I was just a casual true crime consumer. It just, we are not very good as humans at detecting lies or detecting deception or detecting human behavior in terms of people um, making up stuff. I think you've just got to look at the evidence and uh, all of this kind of, oh, look, she's looking to the left. She's looking up to the left. She must be lying. is just, it's not something I put much stock in and nor do we get red handed. (laughs) I
0: think uh, some of the problem could be that people are not brought up on true crime; yeah. they're brought up on movies, which is untrue mm-hmm. crime. Yes. And so, if you're not acting the way that the innocent people act in the movies, then you are innocent. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: <we've> just
4: been <laughs> You've been conditioned to think that's it. And I think one of the most uh, interesting things that Serial points out very early on in the podcast is this idea that we have found repeated again and again in stories we've done. Innocent people accidentally make themselves look far more guilty than a guilty person. Because the guilty person is ready. They're ready with answers. They're ready with an alibi. They're ready with a story for where they were that day. They will tell you. In fact, one of the ways to spot if someone is lying is are they giving you too many details? Are they telling you a story in chronological order? Things that the police will do is actually ask somebody to tell the story in reverse because somebody who's lying will find it more difficult because they've practiced it in a certain chronological order, for example. Um, and I think innocent people, they don't have a cover story. They don't know where they were six weeks ago on a Tuesday because where was our, where were you, Graham, six weeks ago on a Tuesday? I don't know. Yeah. Like, what? Who a little knows? bit easier
0: to tell after, after lockdown. <laughs> I know, during lockdown. Pre-lockdown, pre- not a chance. Yeah. Not a
4: chance. And I think this is why. And I think even looking at the uh, serial case, I don't think Adnan Saeed killed uh, men I don't think that he did that. I think it's a it's a real travesty of um, justice what's ha- uh, happened to him and I think that, for example, with him he was a Muslim boy who had, came from a very strict family. He was lying, probably, to cover up what he was really doing mm-hmm. um, because his family would have been angry and disapproved and I think the police used that in order to make him look guilty and I think that these kind of things um. You have to go far beyond just people's behavior, the stories they tell to real hard evidence. And I think that uh, as humans, we're so quick to pass judgment on people. And that's one of the things that Red Handed, we really want to want to push forward as our message is uh, don't judge them just based on the fact that they're not crying hard enough. Because someone who's pretending is probably crying very hard because that's what they think you want to see.
0: Yeah, it's tricky. The podcast is called Red Handed. It's at number 10 this week on the pod 20. Next week, I'll talk to Saruti about how the growth of podcasting has been helped by commercial radio losing its way and making itself irrelevant. At number nine this week, Chris Evans, How to Wow. A goldmine of inspiration, wisdom and experience. Harvested firsthand from the minds, hearts, and spirits of dynamic, maverick, and high-achieving individuals. At number eight, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Let's check back in with my guest now, Tom Clark Hill, who is the voice of Tony the Tiger, and also part of the podcast Spanner and Spoon. So Tom, you were living in Los Angeles, you're playing in a band, you're doing comedy, you're working as a voice actor as well. Yeah what was it made you decide to make the huge move across the whole country and then across the atlantic you know however many thousand miles that is
2: yeah i mean most i was working on a um, a cruise ship i got a job uh, i met a trumpet player in la and i signed out the musicians union and he was this uh this little jewish cat named norm normie Fay. And uh, I did this jam session, and I'd almost tell this guy to shut up because he was just obnoxious. He was like, "Come on, let's play this tune. In. Let's play that tune. Come on, we're gonna do this. and We're gonna do that." You know, and everybody else is like, "You know, come on, give me a turn again." Normie's he's running the show, and I almost said, "Man, why don't you chill out? Let somebody else do it." I like, just shut up, play the bass. Shut up, Tom. And I see him down at the musicians' union two weeks later. He goes, "Hey, Tom, you want to go on a cruise ship?" And I went, "Yeah, absolutely." You know, I'm like 25 years old. I'm single. Why not? So I go out and, and um uh it was a great experience as a musician because I went from uh a lot of times jazz, you know, you you get a chord sheet and you just kinda like mess around on it, but you it's not as precise as having to play a show. And I got in the show band where we used to have to read charts for singers and entertainers and you know, jugglers and all this stuff. There's all kinds of stuff thrown at us. But all the musicians were from the US. And all the casino girls were from the UK. ah,
0: uh, Because they just, like the uh, English accents on the ladies.
2: Yeah, yeah. So this uh, gorgeous brunette named Jackie saw me across a crowded staff dining room and thought, hmm, green card.
0: <laughs> had she always wanted to move to the US, had she?
2: Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. No, it was, it, it was love.
0: I, and, I uh, No, obviously I know, obviously yeah, I know yeah. that. But deep down, had she well, always oh, yeah, she about, would, yeah. She'd
2: always been into um, the Osmonds. Right. Which uh, I I would never let her forget, you know, and uh, and so she she'd been like since a little kid. She'd always wanted to move to the States. And that's why she got that job. She was working in London. And then when a chance came to work on a cruise ship in in, uh, L.A., she took that job. So we got married and lived in L.A. for years, had a couple of kids. And then I just kind of had this epiphany one night that um, I didn't want to raise my kids in Los Angeles. And. I was doing, I was at the top of my game as a musician, but the acting and the voiceover stuff was so competitive because everybody's got this weird accent like me, you know, so it wasn't <laughs> like I didn't stand out at all. Yeah. You know, so, and I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm being selfish raising my kids in this environment if, if I'm not really doing as good as I could anyway, you know.
0: And Los and, Angeles at the time, was it the kind of place you wouldn't want to bring kids up? Was, was a bit of that, you too? know,
2: it, it's, it's, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to run, run it down. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's a whole different bag over here. You you know, it's like, uh, the, you know, the, the right to bear arms, you know, we could, we could talk about that. You know, we could talk about gangs. We could talk about all kinds of stuff. All I knew is that when I was a kid, my mouth used to get me in a lot of trouble. And over there, you know, if you, if you pick on a gang member or something like that, you know, then, then uh, it's bad news. Even if you beat them up in a fight or something like that, they're going to come back and shoot your dog and your cousin and your grandma and uh, all these weird things are going to happen. And I think what it, the epiphany for me was—it was right after the Rodney King trial, too. You know, right and I the had riots. friends Yeah, I had friends that were, you know, you know, they, oh, I got—I'm going to the gig. I got my amp. I got my uh, guitar. Got the drumsticks and uh, oh yeah, I got my gun. You know that sort of thing. And um, so. I just thought you know if, if i'm hanging out here you know for this kind of like pie in the sky sort of gig that i'm not going to get because i'm i'm already caught up in doing all the music stuff you know right. i wouldn't want one of my kids to to suffer for that you know so it was right. kind of a, a and and what happened was uh, all that stuff went down you know when the the riots were going on but um not long after that i was living in a place called uh, santa clarita which is kind of above you know, there's L.A. and then there's the valley, San Fernando Valley, and then Santa Clarita, which is a decent area. But couple of couple of, you know, middle class kids got in a fight. And the next day, next one brings his dad's nine millimeter to school and starts waving it around, you know. And I just thought it's too easy to to get shot over here, you know. So that was my that was my impetus to move, you know.
0: Yeah, and nowadays, with modern technology, you can be anywhere in the world and be a voice actor. But you got to be Tony the Tiger. I want to find out how you got that gig in a little bit. It's the Pod 20, the world's first and only podcast countdown. At number seven this week, it's Grounded with Louis Theroux. Number six, No Such Thing as a Fish, the award-winning podcast from the QI offices. At five, BJ Shays, Geek Nation. BJ, you're a major radio personality in the USA on KISW in Seattle. You've been there for a long time. And I saw you speak at a radio convention a while back. And it was interesting to hear you talk about your approach to broadcasting. You regard it more as being an actor. That was. Yes. Can you just talk us through that a little bit? Because that's not every dj or radio announcer or host approaches it that way i don't think
5: no they don't graham and i I think that's on our industry because we don't have casting directors if you look at all the other great performing arts out there movies television plays uh there there are casting directors our business doesn't have it our business says they'll go to the perhaps the director and say would you cast this and you know in the in the movie business a director might Think they? Should. Oh, I know who's perfect for this. And sometimes they'll even have input. But a lot of times, if it's a well-run production, they will get that casting director involved because they just have that eye that sometimes a director doesn't have. Um, and I and 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 I love that you especially. And I love that because I studied that watching a lot of behind-the-scenes with different movies that I've enjoyed, and uh, including with Doctor Who because uh, I remember that um, one of the directors had said about Matt Smith. Um, he had said that. You know, I created the character how I thought it was going to be. And then probably by episode three or four, Matt was telling me how the character was going to be. And if you get a good actor, that will happen. You will lose your baby, but they will make it better than you ever expected. And that's the sign of a great director that will let the character go. And a great actor that will take the character further than any writer and director ever would have imagined. Um, And I, I, I've taken that to heart and realized this is a performing art. I mean, for crying Out Loud, Graham, we are the we are the medium that convinced this country that we were being invaded by Martians. <laughs> the great Orson Welles convinced people in this country that Martians were coming to earth, radio did that. And I feel like, yes, in a way we've lost our way because radio still can be that. And that's why I approach it as an actor. I'm a performer. I'm not some big mouth that wants my opinion out there and nobody will listen to me. So I'm going to use this as a giant soapbox to put forth some agenda when in reality, reality I should be in a therapist's office talking <laughs> rather than talking to a bunch of people. Um, I view this as a performance and as an art at its core, I hope that my performance elicits a reaction in the person who's listening to my art and that it catalyzes some kind of growth in the positive direction for them. That's what I hope, but I hope you have a reaction. Love it, hate it, that's cool. If you're neutral to what I do, I'm like, oh, I gotta be better. I mean, I mean there's gotta be something. I want you to have some reaction and loving or hating it is, if that, either one is good for me because that means you've had, you've had an experience with it like any artist wants you to have. And they want, and, and I want it to be individual. I don't want to tell you the kind of interaction you should have with my show. I hope it's unique to you as it is to the next person. And that's art, and that's why I, I come at it like uh, an actor, because that's really what I am. If I'm, so if go, I'm
0: really, do you go to the program director and do you say to them, "Well, how do you want this to come across?" And then adjust your performance accordingly? Then in the same way,
5: exactly, that? right. Exactly. Yeah, they, they have what they call the filter. Yeah. And they'll say, our filter is this is our target audience. The filter is we want you to be fun or we don't want you to be political. We don't want you to be anti this. We And, and then we'll sit down and, okay, define our characters and have a meeting and say, okay, what's my character? And then everybody on the show... We define their characters based loosely based on oneself. It's yeah, easier, you're not, play, you're not playing to somebody, play. you're
0: not. you're You're playing yourself yes, exactly. A, a certain exaggerated part of your own personality.
5: Yes, and sometimes I will accentuate certain parts of my personality, and uh, and then I will basically just bury some of the other ones if they don't fit within the filter. And then if for certain, so, I'm not as argumentative. When I was working on a previous show, they wanted this argumentative guys guy, and you know, women were the enemy, all about us men, and you know, and I had just come from an all female radio station that was you know playing the hits, so I thought, okay, this will be interesting. Can I pull this off? Um, But there was a part of my personality that I could tap into, you know, that tribal brotherhood, you know, you know, those women don't know anything we know best. And and so I did that for like for the first uh, five or six years while I was in Seattle. Then when they moved me to the rock station, they brought me and said, so yes, we still target men, but we love women here too. (laughs) so we really don't we don't want this us versus them mentality and we also don't want you to get heavy political where I was a little bit more so on the previous show but I was able to make that adjustment because it's like all right um I can be fun and I can you know I I I can do all that so I would tone down what they didn't want and tone up what they wanted um because I knew me and I also knew the character um I'm much more you know I there was um there's a great inside the actor's studio was the program by James Lipton. And I loved mm-hmm. when he brought actors on and he would ask them questions of them, the person, and then of them, the character they play on television. And I would watch that Graham. And it was such a wonderful study to see all of a sudden it was like, almost like a split personality. I was like, Whoa, because I believe both of the answers. And yet yeah. they were completely different. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I want to be that good. I and want and people the- to the belief.
0: What is the difference then between B.J. Shea, the bloke that I know, and B.J. Shea, the radio performer?
5: Oh, that's a good question. Have, do you feel like we've ever had any like sort of off-air conversations? I'd like to believe that when I'm just hanging with you, yeah. um, that I'm just hanging with you. Yeah, you Whereas are. On, and then when you listen to the show on air, then you'll hear B.J. Shea. Mm. I think that's the best way I could put it because if we worked on the air together, I think you would definitely know a difference because you'd be like, oh, okay, this is how you would answer this question because I've asked you on air. Yeah. Um, but if you were, to, like "Like we're doing this interview, yeah, um, I suppose you could ask me any question if you'd like and I could answer it both ways. That's the best way I could demonstrate, I think, if you want a real demonstration. You, you could ask one question about anything and I will tell you what I think as opposed to what BJ Shay on the air thinks is probably, cause I think I've always just been me around you. Cause we've never been on air together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you have a question. I, 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 put, I put you in the hot seat, didn't I? Yeah,
0: I, you know, I'm supposed to ask the questions, BJ, but okay, so we want uh... <laughs> Well, sorry. I, we... sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> we have to stay away from politics and well, uh um, no, well,
5: here you here you can you can ask me anything here i can uh, ask you anything here
0: okay anything you want. Yeah, we'll, yeah. well tell I me mean, okay okay i'll ask for you give me your opinion of donald trump first is bj shea the bj i know to hang with and the bj the presenter how, how would the two answer that question give me your honest because I, I want it to be honest opinion of donald trump
5: yes uh my honest opinion of, of donald trump is that, um, and I, and, and I, and I'll pull this from a book that I read. Uh, now, th- am I little talking little
0: to BJ violent. now, or am I talking to host of BJ and Migs?
5: Well, if I remember you, I think you wanted me to give you the me that you know. Yes, yes, and I do. BJ and Megs after, so I'm okay. giving up. Okay, yeah, but I okay. Should, just to I make it clear to that. anyone who's not okay. following at home, yeah. what I will do, I promise you this, <laughs> and, and my best Patrick Stewart, I will, I will get up and I will give you one of these. I just actually transported um, <laughs> but I will and my best Patrick Stewart, I will let you know when I'm acting okay uh, okay this is yeah this is me what I find um, what I find disturbing is that and, and and not just with Donald Trump because I just don't believe one person is to blame for the state of anything. it's just i I will not fall for that but what I do notice is the languaging that I'm hearing coming out out of the top spot is, is disturbing to me because I read in, in this book called Braving the Wilderness by Brene Brown, and she's just brilliant when she talks about how we interact with each other and, and, and how to be good humans. There is languaging coming from the top spot in my country that is dehumanizing. And that scares me because dehumanizing language is a gateway to some really nasty things, and you can just look back in history. When you're calling human beings dogs, and when you are taking human beings and putting them on a different level than yourself, that never leads to anything good. Hmm. And that disturbs me. It disturbs me that all of the leaders in our country are tolerating this. Because, I mean, it's not that long ago that human beings who were called dogs were then later treated horrifically by a leader, mm. and, and many leaders in our history. And I'm not saying that our president is that bad, but that languaging is a gateway. And I'm always on alert. I want to be, be on alert and say, wait a second. And, and Brene Brown is the one that hit me to it in her book. So it is very concerning. That is my opinion, is that I do not need that out of the top spot of my country's representatives. That bothers the heck out of me. And I wish that would change because humans do not need to treat other humans in that way. It just does not need to happen, especially in 2020. Uh, I can't believe 60 years later, I'm still hearing that kind of language from time to time, calling another human being a dog. Yeah. You know, Graham, that's, that's just disturbing. And a follow-up
0: question while I'm still talking to you rather than... The yes, host, yes. Do the media need to do a better job of calling him on it. I think in the the last, I only think it's been in the last couple of weeks, there was a great HBO interview with him and and recently, it's been very recent. He's been allowed to get up for me. I think he's been allowed to get away with it too long. What's your view on on how US media has been dealing with him?
5: I've always said this before about the US media. If they are running commercials, you're never going to get the truth. Because they have to i, th- I think I, you know i don't know you would know the bbc better than myself but because they're not commercial i think you have a better chance of getting the truth because no one is sponsoring it if i'm understanding what the bbc is yeah the it's, bbc commercial
0: the bbc has always been accused of having a, a liberal bias but, but yes but definitely not a political position but it's only ever been accused of. they've never admitted it so, uh, yeah.
5: Well, even, even our, our, our media's bias could very well be based on advertising. That's my point is if somebody is running commercials during your anything, I suspect that, well, what if, you know, somebody who runs the giant company whose commercials you're running wants you to approach news in a certain way and they're spending millions of dollars keeping your agency going, who's to say that can't happen? That's why I don't like where the media has gone. And, and it's definitely, there's been an erosion of quality of all of our media over the last few decades anyway. So this is a problem that now has come to light. But then again, this is the beautiful thing about President Trump. You don't get to be where he is and operate the way he does unless you were a allowed to, and we've seen this happening in the world of politics anyway. If anything, Donald Trump has shown us how ugly politics are, and he's not trying to hide it. And whereas you might get this smooth-talking politician that sounds nice and sounds sweet, but if he's behaving the way that President Trump is behaving, whether you like it or not, at least Trump is telling you, Here's what you're getting, baby. Whereas (laughs) other politicians were doing the same thing, but would smooth you over and smile. And I have a great appreciation for what this president is doing for that reason. He is showing us what politics in our country really is really all about, which I've always suspected. Mm -hmm. It's ugly. Mm -hmm. And they are just horrific with the way they are running our country. And it's all based on money. What else could it be based on? Maybe fear as well. I always believe that when you get a fearful leader, oh my God, it's probably the worst thing ever. And you and I probably know the history of leaders that needed mental help Mm -hmm. (laughs) and were overrun with fear and the things they do because they're that afraid. Uh, And there are plenty of stories, especially in the world of sci-fi that tell you about that. Um, So our media, I will say that I've known some people that are doing a good job trying to get their voice out there. But Graham, whatever the, the agenda has been, the hashtag fake news has done a great job because nobody knows what to believe anymore. Mm. Um, And that is because we've allowed ourselves to be inundated with information because we can't put our cell phones down. Uh, We have overloaded our brains. Um, There's a wonderful book called Bright Line Eating, which is actually a diet book, but uh, this researcher found out that we are more fatigued, our willpower is actually so much less than what our parents and grandparents had for willpower because of the fact that we have so much exposure and so many decisions we make, even answering emails, which they never had to do. It's, it's it, it strains us. So we don't have the willpower at the end of the day that they had, which is I think why we have an obesity problem. It's just harder to say, I'm going to be strong enough and do what I want to do. And I think that they've taken advantage of that. I think the media, I think that politics and the media have taken advantage of our low willpower because we've basically picked up these, these lovely devices and just don't put them down. Um, so I know that at least, all right, if that's true, I can do something about that individually. Mm -hmm. That's a very long answer, by the way. Uh, Well, that is a very long answer,
0: but it it was what I expected from you, but I don't know what to expect when you give me the answer from BJ Shea from BJ and Migs in the morning. Mm -hmm.
5: Yeah. um, And the answer I will give from BJ and Migs in the morning, again, again because of the filter that has to happen, is that I will be very aggressive. So, uh, so, uh, look, Graham, you know, i I understand why you're asking that question i know why you're asking that question i can tell what do i think of the guy if you love the guy would you ask me that question no so right off the bat i mean you're gonna put me in the corner and go what do you think of the guy that i hate and i would ask you why do you care what i think about donald trump i'm gonna ask what do you think about donald trump why is my my opinion even matter to you unless of course you're looking for me to agree with you and go yes he's a horrible person or maybe you know what maybe you're one of those guys that go how about that trump huh knowing that if i don't like him you're gonna hate me so you can't win with that answer because you know what nobody ever really cares what i think you just want me to agree with what you think and guess what i'm not your therapist i'm not gonna answer that question go ask somebody who's a paid professional and stop bothering me with politics let's talk about something we won't argue over
0: Brilliant. You are an entertainer through and through, BJ. You are an entertainer.
5: Well, wow, that's, that's very kind coming from you, because you know I actually I really, really do think highly of you. I, I've i always been impressed with you and have listened, you know, I've listened to a lot of stuff that you've done, Graham. So that's high praise. Thank you. Thank you, BJ.
0: BJ Shays Geek Nation is number five this week on the Pod 20. At number four, the Joe Rogan experience. And let's check in with my guest one more time, Tom Clark Hill. You're probably most famous for being Tony the Tiger. How did you get that gig?
2: Um, back in, uh, uh, I always remember, because my oldest son, or youngest son, is 21 now. And he was in a push chair at got the gig. So it was like 1999 or something like that, or 98, 99. And um, the original Tony the Tiger in the States was a guy named Thurl Ravenscroft.
0: What a great name.
2: Yeah, man. And he passed away. And they so they decided to get two guys. They got one that covered America and um, who passed away in 2012. I can't remember his name. And but uh, people were asking me when he died. They said, are you dead? You know, but it wasn't me. And um, then they got a guy to do the UK, Australia, New Zealand and all the, you know, English speaking stations in Europe. Yeah, and so I went up for that gig, and there was forty, maybe forty guys auditioning, and it was every American and every English guy that could do it, a, a American accent, you know, and um, guys going up and down the hall. They're great. They're great. They're great. They're great. It's a great great mate. <laughs> and um, so then the next time I came, there was ten guys, and then the next time I came, there was five guys, and they told me to stick around and be the last one. So I think that I they'd already picked me. But, they, you know, it was a big ad agency. Kellogg's had people there. And it was J. Walter Thompson was the ad agency. And then I got the gig. And that went until, uh, I think the last one they aired was 2012, though. Their oh, really? Legisla- when the legislation came in to uh, ban cartoon characters selling sugary cereal to kids, you know.
0: So you've been banned, in effect, then?
2: Well, yeah. And since then, since then I've had some, um, well, so I, I did a voiceover gig once and I was sitting next to a guy named Gary Martin and Gary Martin was the, the honey monster. Okay. And then across the table was another friend of mine named Eric Myers, who was the Nesquik bunny. Right. And then, so when all this went down, I thought we should get all three of us, get on a park bench, you know, and, and then in character, you know, like be selling the big issue or something, you know.
0: <laughs> Actually, it'd make a great podcast, wouldn't it? Yeah. Out of work cartoon characters from cereal boxes.
2: Yeah, yeah, man. Set it up.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, what is the key to getting Tony right then? When you could do Tony?
2: Um, I just remembered what he sounded like when I was a kid. Yeah, And then uh, I added a little bit of extra cheese to get me noticed. You know, I did like a little rap tune,
0: you know. You did? Can I hear it?
2: My name is Tony, the number one cat. And I can't remember any more than that. I don't know what it was, <laughs> you know. And so uh, the casting director, you know, gets the, when you start doing more than what's on the script on the paper, the casting director always gets this look of fear. Like, what's he doing? You know, that sort of thing. And then the ad agency's guy goes, oh, man, this guy has no shame. But, you know, it got me the callback, so.
0: Good plan, though, because they're going to compare all the other scripts to all the other scripts. They can't compare a rap because you, it's an original yeah. one. Yeah, good plan. Yeah. So how did your kids react? What age were they when Dad became Tony the Tiger?
2: Well, my youngest was just one. The oldest was 11. So I had an 11, uh, and then a 7, and then a daughter who was about 3 or something like that. And when they were little, they thought it was cool. And then when they got to that that awkward sort of like you know twelve to sixteen years old, they say, "Don't tell him, Dad. Don't tell him." You know, because they have kids falling around. Hey, your dad's great. You know, sort of thing.
0: Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah. So of well, course, I mean, so- my youngest
2: son, he, you know, he's he's he, he thinks it's pretty cool. He, he's never, you know, he but he's he's in the uh, the music profession, and also he wants to do what you're doing. You know, have a podcast and. Uh, reach out and all that stuff you know so he exploits it the best he can you know
0: well of course you've got to and didn't one of your kids end up being a vo- getting voice over work yeah, my when my you first moved taylor. to the uk you yeah totally. my oldest son
2: taylor and he's still working yeah and we're on a we're on a series on netflix right now called Robozuna. Yeah, yeah it was itv they might still be showing it on itv as well and he plays uh the main character this kid named ariston and uh, his sidekick is this big rusty robot that was like a work robot that turns into a big gladiator robot, and I'm his sidekick. Mangle. Mangle (laughs) the robot talks like this.
0: You are your son's sidekick.
2: Yeah, yeah, so it's like role reversal, man.
0: Absolutely. Tom Clark Hill, who will be back next week to talk about how his life changed when he moved from the United States to Britain. It's the pod 20, and we've reached the top three. At number three, the secret's out. YouTuber and author Alfie Days has sat on thousands of stories from his audience. Those incognito secrets are now waiting to be shared with the world. At number two, I can't believe it's not Buddha. Lee Mack discovers Buddhism. And at number one... For the fifth week in a row. Shagged, Married, Annoyed with Chris and Rosie Ramsey. That's it for episode 23 of the Pod 20. I'm Graham Mack and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Tom Clark-Hill, BJ Shea, Saruti Bala and Rob Goldstone. If you'd like to watch extended video chats with all of my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Next week, my special guests are Ben Ando and Victoria Mitzi from the True Crime podcast, You Didn't Let Me Finish. So do you have a favourite case of all the cases you've covered?
6: Oh, gosh. Uh, Really difficult to say. I mean, I I do keep coming back to Levi Belfield because he was just such a fascinating character. He was uh, so many contradictions and it was, you know, such a such a huge effort to actually track him down and find him and when you look at all i mean and, and a, a case where there was no hard evidence at all because as, you know we talked to colin sutton who i've known for years who was the detective who led that investigation and it was all about circumstantial evidence and yet they build up they've been managed to build up through lots and lots of really detailed forensic work such a compelling overall picture that had belfield in the center of this kind of web of of evidence that in the end the jury um was clearly convinced of his guilt and you know unanimously found him guilty of, of the three murders but there was no there was no forensics there's no sort of like um you know dna type evidence no hard
0: evidence at all all circumstantial
6: still convicted and they convicted him because of you know the, the the level of dedicated work that went into actually proving that it was him and, and showing that it had to be him because he couldn't be anybody else
4: you feel that there's been a slight miscarriage of justice when it comes to the chillenden murders that we also covered
6: yes which ones were they just just Um,
0: bring me up to speed
6: that was lynn russell and um megan russell were killed yes lynn russell's mum and the daughter of megan russell and then josie russell the other daughter survived and michael stone was convicted of those uh, murders twice in fact because he's had one case thrown out of the court of court of appeal but i'm still not convinced
0: wow wow Mm. Fernando and Victoria Mitzi from the True Crime podcast you didn't let me finish. Next week on the Pod 20. And what will happen on the podcast chart next week? Will Chris and Rosie Ramsey make it 6 weeks in a row at the top? Maybe your favorite podcast will be number 1. Find out next week and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk.